And when you have the power to make things move and get money in exchange for them, then you have a business opportunity. If you can't make the money move, then you don't have any control over your business. So that's the number one principle that every creator needs to understand. If you're waiting on TikTok or YouTube to create more monetization tools for you to make money from the thing that you're doing, well, they own you because as soon as they decide to turn them off or kick you off, what are you going to do? Welcome to the Creative Tax Podcast with Mike Brennan. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Creative Chats. It's the podcast for artists, makers, and content creators where we talk about creativity, the creative process, and story. I'm your host, Mike Brennan. You can connect with me over on Instagram. I'm at Mike Bone or on my website, which is mikebrennan.me. Hey, I'd love for you to stop by dailycreativehabit.com. I've created several resources with you in mind as a creative person. First, there's a link to our free private Facebook group called Daily Creative Habit. It is filled with creatives of all types who have raised their hands to say, I want to show up more consistently for my creativity and craft. And so if that's you, we would love to see you as part of this group. There's also a link to receive our free Daily Creative Habit email newsletter. This goes out twice a week and is filled with resources and inspiration and daily prompts for you as a creative person to make sure that you keep showing up every single day for your creativity. And lastly, there's a link out to the new Daily Creative Habit Guided Creativity Journal. And this is something that I'm really excited about because it's a 90-day journey that you can go on that guides you to plan and show up for your creativity and help you track and help you measure and figure out exactly what it is that you want to do and how you want to do it. This is available right now through Amazon.com. Hey, my guest today is Dre Baldwin, and Dre is the CEO and founder of Work On Your Game, and he got his start actually in basketball. Now, I know uh, for many of us, you know, the creative types, quote, um, maybe our creativity looks like visual art, performing arts, uh, culinary arts, things of that nature, but there is a lot of creativity to be found in the sports arena as well. And I don't often go in that arena, but uh, today I was fortunate enough to have this conversation to really explore Dre's background, his story, and see just his resourcefulness and his drive, his ambition to succeed and to keep reinventing himself, to keep showing up, not waiting for opportunities, but for making opportunities and doing the necessary work that would move him forward. So uh, this is a great interview that I have today, great chat with Dre, and I know that it's going to speak to you regardless of whatever your creative expression or interest is. So without further ado, here is my creative chat with Dre Baldwin. Well, Dre, welcome to the Creative Chats podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Uh, thank you for having me on, Mike. I'm excited for this conversation. Yes, me too. And, you know, it's funny because when I came across you and I was reading your bio and just getting to know a little bit more about you beforehand, uh, I think mm. you're probably the first person I'm having on that has anything to do with the sports world. 
um, mm. which is it's it's interesting. You know, I mean, I'm not necessarily a sports fan myself. Uh, I'm definitely more of like visual art, music, entertainment stuff. Um, mm. But I know that there's a lot of things that we can talk about regarding creativity and sports as well. And uh, I'm just excited to be able to unpack your journey a little bit and hear how some of those experiences help shape even to where you are today. So um, I say that welcome. <laughs> Yeah, so they definitely played a big role. So I'm sure we'll get into that in this conversation and other things. Yes, yes. yes. So just for the sake of the listeners, though, out of the gate, why don't you give us that little like blurb, the, the you know, the sentence that you give at parties when people are like, hey, how are you? What do you do? Oh, well, I give I can give a sentence or I can give a, a paragraph. I give you a paragraph. <laughs> it's up to you. Guys, sure. <laughs> yeah. So so my background is uh, uh, from the city of Philadelphia, PA. We talked about that before we start recording and uh, down now I live in South Florida. And my background, Mike, is I was always in the sports, played at every sport growing up or at least dappled in it. Uh, didn't really get serious until about age 14 when I moved over to basketball, which is kind of late. If you want to go somewhere in a sport, let alone no like college, let alone pros. I only played one year high school. Goal, walked on to play college ball. Then I had to hustle my way into pro ball. And at the same time I started playing pro ball, I started putting videos on this brand new website called YouTube. And this is way before YouTube was YouTube. So this was mm -hmm. just showing basketball players how to practice basketball. I was just showing them stuff that a basketball player does to practice. That started me to building an audience on the internet before this was a normal thing. So we're talking to 2000s, 2005 to about 2010. Those players started asking me about mindset. I started talking about that. That led to me drawing an audience of people who were not athletes. And then when I stopped playing ball in 2015, I already had this audience of people who had athletes and I had non-athletes. I knew when I stopped playing sports that you know, the athletes wouldn't you know, notice me as much because I wasn't out there doing it every day. And I wasn't in the game anymore. So that's where I transitioned to really dealing with professionals and entrepreneurs, which is what I do to this day. So you know, fast forward through that whole you know, last 20 years. Now that's what I do now is work with professionals and entrepreneurs. My company's called Work On Your Game. And what we do is really just give people the game, whatever the game may be. That game could be mental. It could be strategic. It can be systematic. It can be about accountability and execution. But that's how I ended up in this place. And I'm sure in this conversation, we'll you know, fill in the gaps there that I left out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Love it. Love it. Uh, I love especially the fact that where you are and what you're talking about, you know, and, and you're saying whatever the game is, it's right. like finding that thread that is the universal thing, right? And I love to do that on this right. podcast too, because someone may be listening, thinking, you know, if my guest is a visual artist and they're like, well, I'm, I have nothing to do with visual arts, but I always mm -hmm. encourage people, I'm like, lean into this because there may be something about this person's process, their story, their journey that right. you can find that's universal to apply to your context. And so it sounds like, you know, you have this ability to get into people's um, games, right? <laughs> and figure <laughs> out like, what is the thing that that's, uh, they're needing to take these next steps for them to thrive, right? So um, that's, that's awesome. I love that. Yes. Uh, well, I appreciate it. And that's, that's really what the work on your game is all about. Because I started saying it, like, initially to athletes, to ballplayers, like, sure. hey, the reason why you're not getting better at basketball is because you're not spending enough time working on your game. You know, you're watching YouTube instead of actually practicing. But the good thing about it, and this is kind of serendipitous is I didn't plan it this way, but work on your game doesn't say sports, right? right. It doesn't say business. It doesn't say podcasting. It just says work on your game. So when I walk around with a, no, I got a suit on now, but if I used to walk around with a work on your game hat or work on your game t-shirt, 
someone who doesn't even know me. I could be in Mar in the mall. I could be in the middle of Target. Somebody sees it and they're like, work on your game. That's right. That's perfect. Right. right? Yeah. So you don't need to have to explain it. Right. And that's a pretty good slogan when you don't have to explain it. Absolutely. Right? So that's where it came from. Love it. Love it. Yeah. So let's let's dial back to the basketball days. Right. And sure. so you played professional basketball for nine years, correct? That's right. OK. And so you were on this trajectory. Um, was this something that you're thinking like, OK, this is this is pretty much it. This is where you wanted to be. You've arrived. Like what did that part of the journey look like and how did that change the closer you got to like the point at which you were leaving it? Man, so when I first wanted to get into it, so I probably made the decision, Mike, that I wanted to become a pro athlete, probably around age 16. Now, I didn't start playing pro till I was age 23. So you get out of college around 22. So so around 16, I decided that that's the thing I want to go for is try to become a pro athlete. But at this point, I wasn't even on my high school team. So you can imagine like how far up I had to look from where I was standing at that point to get to the pro level. Um, and I just continued to get better. I knew I was a kind of a I started late. So I knew it would be what they call a late bloomer. If I was going to bloom at all, it would be late. I didn't know right. it would bloom. There was no guarantee, but I knew I had started late. So I didn't even, I wasn't super discouraged by the fact that most of the players my age were already better than me because I knew I had started late. They've been playing since they were you no know, single digits age. So uh, going in high school, only one year, didn't really play, sat the bench. But then going to college, I was lucky enough to end up at a college that was a pretty small college. So I was, I got on the basketball team, became a starter my freshman year. And really, I just had the space to grow, I had the space to develop. And now I got a transfer, I got recruited from the school that I started at my freshman year to another school as a sophomore, which was still just a division three school, which is a lower tier of athletics. So most of the athletes at division three schools, they play a sport because it's available and they're good enough to be on a team there, not because they have these uh, grand ambitions of being a professional athlete. Most division three athletes are playing just because they can and because it's available. This is an extracurricular activity is something to do, but most of them aren't thinking I'm going to go to the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball after this, right? It's just there. I had that ambition. So it, most of my teammates, most of my peers were not thinking this way. So that was just what I had on my mind as an athlete in college. And then to get into the pros after I graduated, my first year out of school, Mike, I worked two quote unquote regular jobs. I worked mm -hmm. at Foot Locker as an assistant manager. I worked at a gym called Bally Total Fitness. You remember them? Yes. Uh, they're, yeah, they're out of they're out of business now, but not because of me. I did a pretty good job. <laughs> I, sold, yeah, I sold a lot of memberships for Bally. I was the top salesperson at nice. my location. So now this is 2004 to give everybody a, a time frame here. So in the summer of 2005, so this is a year removed from graduating from college. I worked six months at Foot Locker, six months at Bally Total Fitness. And then I went to this event called an exposure camp. You familiar with those? Ever heard of it? No. Okay. So yeah, people who don't know the sports world probably never heard of these, but an exposure camp is like a job fair. Now you do know okay. what a job fair is. Yes. Okay. So job fair, a bunch of people who don't have a job, they show up, you put on your best clothes, you bring your resume, you go you know, smile at people, shake hands and hand out your resume. Hopefully you can talk your way into at least an opportunity, a job interview or something of the sort. An exposure camp is similar, but it's for athletes. But instead of us putting on a you know, business suit and shaking hands, we bring our sneakers and shorts and we actually play that sport in front of an audience of decision makers. So mm -hmm. you think at a job fair, let's say the decision makers are the hiring managers and the HR people and the business owners at a exposure camp, 
The decision makers are coaches, agents, scouts, general managers, and team owners from basketball teams all around the globe. They come to these things as like a destination event. So they travel to these events in the summertime looking for talent because they're looking for the next player that they want to sign to their team. So there's a whole ecosystem, there's a whole underworld of this, this stuff that goes on in the sports world and basketball in particular, because there are so many, like a lot of people don't notice, but in the NBA, even people who don't know sports know the NBA, there's about 450 jobs for basketball players. There's another four to 5,000 jobs for American born athletes abroad outside of the United States. So in all the other countries, but that's still only about 5,000 jobs in the whole world for how many people do you think, think they're good enough right. to play pro basketball, right? A million, yeah. Right. So it's still a tough job to get. So what happens every summer, and this is more ubiquitous now than it was 20 years ago, but what happens now is that a lot of athletes, they will, and you have to pay to go to these events. So this is not a free event in uh, exposure camp. You pay money. So you pay money to go to this event. And there's 200 guys there, all athletes, all ball players, and we all think we're good enough to play pro. All of us are not going to make it, but we're, we all think we will. So we're competing against each other to prove that we're good enough to play pro, trying to impress one of these decision makers sitting in the crowd. So that's what that's like. It's a very uh, meat market like environment. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a yeah. casting call, right? So <laughs> yeah. you think about a model casting call, it's kind of like that. That's kind of how a, an exposure camp is. And I went to that camp. I paid $250, had to pay cash at the door because I did not have a credit card or a bank account at the time and uh, paid in cash. Played, it was in Orlando, Florida, by the way. And I'm from Philly. So we rented a car in Philly and drove 15 hours from Philly to Orlando, hopped out the car uh, Saturday mornings to play at right at nine o'clock. Right when the camp started, we hopped out the car. Now I could get away with that at age 23. Probably couldn't do it now. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah. Did it then. Played pretty good. It was only two days. Two games on Saturday, two games on Sunday. And I did pretty well at that exposure camp. I got a good scouting report, which was third-party validation of my ability. Somebody else saying that I was good besides me saying it. And then I had the footage. And that footage, Mike was on this thing called a VHS tape. You remember those? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that VHS tape, that tape, I took to an audiovisual store, got it put on a data CD. And the footage on that data CD became my first YouTube video because YouTube came out in 2005. So that's how all this stuff connects. So that's how I got started in pro ball. Well, actually I didn't even tell you how I got started. So when I came home from the exposure camp, I did not sign a contract on the spot. So I had a scouting report and I had footage. I got home back to Philly. I had to be back at work on Monday. So the camp was Saturday, Sunday. I had to be back at work on Monday at Bally Total Fitness. I'm back at work. And what I started doing was, because I understood, I didn't know anybody overseas. At that point, I had barely been out of the state of Pennsylvania that much, let alone had I been outside of the United States. And I knew if I played pro, it would probably be overseas. So I figured, who knows people overseas? Because I don't know anybody. Nobody overseas knows me. So I need an agent. So agents in the sports world are similar to agents in the literary world or the acting world. They are basically the go-between between the talent, which is me, and the jobs, teams that could possibly sign me. So I said, let me just figure out if I can get an agent. The agent knows people overseas. They can help me get on. So I started calling basketball agents. I went on Google, which did exist at the time, not as deeply as it does now, but it did exist. And I just Googled basketball agents. So Mike, any agent that I found who had a phone number, I called them. I was literally cold calling basketball agents, telling them, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I have. Because at this point, I had some collateral. 
a year earlier, you, somebody might be wondering, why did you do this last year when you graduated? Well, I didn't have anything to show. All I had was just me talking about myself and, you know, talk right. is cheap. Now I had some proof. I had footage and I had a scouting report. So I started calling agents and said, hey, I got a scouting report. I can send you the link to the scouting report because it was on the Exposure Camps website. So I knew I didn't make it up. And I had the footage. So and, and I said, hey, I got footage, too. I can I can prove to you that I'm good. And I called about 60 agents of those 60. 20 of them said, okay, let me see what you got. Show me your footage. Now, mind you, I couldn't send them a link to YouTube because YouTube didn't exist just yet. I had to send them a physical copy of the VHS tape that I had. So I was making, I had a double decker VCR at home. Oh yeah. So any, any millennials <laughs> listening to this, you don't know what a VCR is, Google it or, you know, ask your parents that'll tell you what a VCR is. So I had a double decker VCR. I was making, I went to this store called Eckerd. I don't know if they mm-hmm. exist anymore, but I went to Eckert and I would buy a 10 pack of blank VHS tapes and I would make copies of that master VHS tape. And I would mail those out in bubble mailers to agents who asked to see my footage on my own dime. Cause at this point I hadn't signed a contract yet. And of those 20 agents that I sent the footage to one agent called me back and said, okay, I'll represent you. And he got me started. So my first job was in Kaunas, Lithuania in this was in the late summer of 2005. So that's how my career got started. That's how I got in the game. Wow. Wow. Dre, yeah. man, I love your persistence. <clears throat> I love that. Um, you know, as, I'm, as I was listening to your story, there were certain things that were coming to mind that I'm going, here's a guy who he's not sitting back waiting for someone to come find him. He's not waiting mm-hmm. for an opportunity to drop in his lap, but he knows that there's a price to admission, literally, right? By right. your time, your cost investments, um, right. doing these cold calls, you know, mm-hmm. all the, the the like the gaps that you encountered, um, you knew that you needed to problem solve in that moment. And that was probably happening intuitively for you because you were just driven, right? Um, and and yet you're you're like, this is going to happen. And if it's going to happen, then I need to step up and and make it happen and mm-hmm. do my part. And I love that because I think so many people have these dreams and big dreams and yet fall short when it's time for action, when it's time to mm-hmm. actually put themselves in the game, right? And say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to figure out the way forward. And yeah, I'm going to make mistakes. And yeah, I'm going to like have some things probably going to go sideways. I'm going to have to learn a bunch of things along the way. It's going to cost me certain things, but I'm going to know at the end of the day, I did all I could do and then see what the response is and see what doors start to open. Right. So I applaud you for that. And thank you for sharing that part of your story, because that's very encouraging. And, um, you know, I think it gives real world application to these concepts. And uh, I'm sure that somebody's listening today and is just thinking, you know, yeah, I got to double down on this thing that I, I want to see happen. Um, so I would love to know, like, when you were in this, was there ever a point at which you thought, okay, this has a certain shelf life to it, right? Because mm-hmm. obviously you're going to get older, uh, you won't be able to to play as well, maybe injuries, maybe I don't know, other thoughts of concerns. Um, and if that right. happened, how did that shape how you were thinking about what comes next? That's a great question. The answer is absolutely. I knew there was a shelf life to it. Because well, first of all, just on a, a logical, rational level, we all understand that professional athlete careers are short. So even if you are great, 
by the age of, let's say, take Tom Brady. You know, he was 45. He's still, I mean, Tom Brady might live another 45 years. So you're only about halfway through your life when your career is over. And that's if you're amazing. Right. Most athletes don't get to choose when their career is over. Or most athletes don't get to make a little video and say, hey, I'm done playing my sport. Uh, but for most athletes, you know, it's funny. I heard this guy say, the guy who used to play in the NBA, he said, uh, sometimes you're the last person to find out your career is over, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Most players who play professional sports, their careers end when the phone is just not ringing anymore and they finally come to grips with the fact that, okay, nobody else wants me is over. All right. It's, it happens like that. You kind of come to accept it. It's not you choose it. It's not, you know, Kobe Bryant get the farewell, farewell tour. That doesn't happen for most players. Right. So that's the first thing I understood that from the beginning that you might get 20 years out of it. You still got another 40 years to live after that. But most athletes, I mean, if you look at the statistics, the average basketball career is about uh, four and a half years. Average football career is three and a half. Baseball is maybe five and a half. So usually by the age of 30 is over for most mm-hmm. professional athletes, even guys who make the pro level, it was the top 1%. So I understood that on a logical level. Now, at the same time, looking at my personal situation, I was coming out of a division three school. So they're looking at my pedigree. I understood that. It was like, I knew that just from talking to the many agents that I had conversations with, that they're looking at your pedigree. You came from a D3 school. I don't know how easy it will be to get you a job simply because of where you come from, right? They're looking right. at your background. So I understood even when I got my first job, there might not be a second job. And in pro ball overseas, for the most part, those contracts are one year at a time. So there's no five-year contract you know, that doesn't happen like that. Like how it happens over here in the USA doesn't happen over there. Usually it's one season at a time. There's some players who get longer contracts, and most players is one season. And really it's like one day at a time because if you have one bad game or a couple bad practices in a row, they can fire you just off of that, and mm-hmm. it's over. So again, a lot of people don't know that. So I understood that from the very beginning that when I got my first one, it might not be a next one. So every time a contract ended, I was like, okay, I might not get the next contract. Now I was working on the next contract and I went to more exposure camps after that first one, but I always understood that this next one might not happen. So around 2009, this is after I had played in a few places. I played in, uh, I was in Lithuania. I played for a traveling team in the United States, kind of like exhibition type team. There was, I played in Montenegro and I played in Germany. So I was back in the United States at this point, uh, 2009, early 2009. And I found myself out of a job again and the phone was not ringing. So I'm like, I had an agent at the time, different agent now. And I'm like, okay, what if the phone doesn't ring again? I always had had that conversation with myself. If it doesn't ring again, what are you going to do? And at this point I had just read Tim Ferriss's four hour work week mm-hmm. and years earlier, about a decade earlier, I had read Robert Kiyosaki's rich dad, poor dad. So I already had it in my mind, Mike, the seeds of entrepreneurship I already had this in my mind because I knew I didn't want to work a traditional job because I saw uh, my, the adults around me growing up, my parents and all the adults around me, they worked traditional jobs and they, they talked about work as if it was a necessary evil. And I'm like, I don't want to spend my life doing something that's a necessary evil just to pay bills. I didn't want to do that. So when I saw the concept of entrepreneurship and I got a right understanding of how it worked, I said, okay, I might as well go after this because I know I don't want that. I know what I don't want. Let me go after this. And maybe this is better. So I already had that in my mind. So when I found myself out of a job and at the same time, I had this audience, I had something building on the internet because I was putting these basketball videos on YouTube at this point. And I had an audience that was growing, but I was only putting the content out sporadically. It's not like I was doing it every day or there was no schedule or anything like that. Because at this time, 
there's no money to be made from putting free material on the internet. Right. Uh, who does that? Right. right. So <laughs> at that time, if you're putting free content on the internet and you're doing that as a thing, then people are looking at you like you're some, some bum who needs to get out of your mom's basement, you know, you know, shave, take a shower and get a real job. <laughs> yes. Right? That's the way people looked at you at that time. So it's not like I was doing YouTube, like this is my job because there was no money to be made. But at this time, and this all this confluence of events all happened at once. So I'm out of a job in basketball. At the same time, Google purchases YouTube. They announced that now we're going to do this thing where we're going to run ads on the videos. And now you can actually make revenue from putting videos on YouTube. And the more popular your video is, the more money you make. And also, I heard that there were people who were actually doing it. And the first few influencers through video were like makeup artists and women make, women doing makeup videos and things like that. So that's when I started to put videos out more consistently. At the same time, I had just read Tim Ferriss's book, which is basically he took his his book was kind of like Rich Dad, Poor Dad before the digital world. It, he was talking about similar entrepreneurial concepts, but how can you do it in the digital world? Here's how you can delegate. Here's how you can hire somebody who's in you know, India or the Philippines to work for you. Here's how you can explain how to do the job. Here's how you can, even if you work at a full-time job, here's how you can delegate work to a virtual assistant. And he was the first person I ever heard explain these concepts. And he made it really simple to understand. And he also explained on his blog, because his blog was really popular before his book came out, right? And he would talk about, hey, here's how you can test out a product idea. And I said, all right, I already got an audience of basketball players. Why not test out a product for basketball players? So I follow his advice and I put up on this free hosting platform, a basically two products, dribbling program and a shooting program for basketball players. Here, this will teach you how to dribble. This will teach you how to shoot the basketball. $4.99 a piece. And he said, you just put these one page sites up. You say, here's the name of the program. Here's a little bit about what it does. Here's the price. You put the big no buy button. Buy now for $4.99. If somebody clicks on the button, don't actually make the product yet. If somebody clicks on the button, on the next page, it will say, hey, this product is under construction. But as soon as it's ready, we'll email you and let you know. So just put your email address in here and we'll let you know as soon as it's ready. And he said, go to Google, Google AdWords, which is the ad platform. Put $5 in Google ads in and run an ad based on the keyword of what your product is about. So I went and bought you know, basketball training keyword and put $5 worth of ads in it. Now, disclaimer to everybody who's listening to this, you cannot do this with $5 today. It would cost you about $50, $50 or $500 today. But back then you could do it with $5. I did it with $5 and people were putting their email addresses in on the page. And he would say, you know, don't do it with people who already know you because they might do it just because they like you. But if you can get strangers to put their email address in, then you know you have a viable product. And people were putting their email address in. So I went and made those programs that very day, same day I was getting the email address, I went and made the program. I went on YouTube, made a video and announced that, hey, I got this new product called, and I called it Hoop Handbook. Still have this website to this day. Introducing hoophandbook.com. You can go on there, you can get training programs for basketball players. And people start buying them, uh, $4.99. So that is how I got into entrepreneurship. And this is all, this all happened in that time period between about 2008 to 2010. And I just started making more programs and now I'm making money on the internet through you no know, YouTube ad revenue. I had a blog going because I've always been a writer and now I'm selling these programs on the internet and I'm like, okay, well, if I don't sign another contract, I'm all right. I'll just do this. I'll just focus yeah. on doing that. Now, the good thing is, Mike, the phone did ring again. I did keep playing. I kept playing until 2015. So to answer your question here and tie this all up, 
yes, I was already thinking about this from the beginning. Hope I was hoping that I would just stay consistently employed in the basketball world. But you no, know, the funny thing is, had I stayed consistently employed in basketball, none of these other things would have happened because I wouldn't have had the I wouldn't have been forced to think about it. I would have just kept playing basketball. I would have just said, all right, I'm good. I'm playing basketball. But because it wasn't always good, because I wasn't always employed, I had to start looking at other things. And that's how I started to build this kind of brand or what we now call a brand and building my business online outside of playing basketball. I started doing it at the same time. Then when the phone rang again, so now I had these two careers going at the same time. So from the last half of my basketball career, 2010 to 2015, I had these two things going. I'm playing professionally overseas while at the same time I had this presence on the internet. I have products that I'm selling. I have a brand and all these things going. And you know, the funny thing is, even to this very day, uh, basketball players who know me, they all know me from YouTube. Nobody knows me from playing overseas. <laughs> right. So you do all that work to become a professional athlete in the top 1%. Nobody knows me from that. Everybody knows me from these homemade videos I was making on YouTube. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Love it. You know, it's funny. Um, I think you highlight perfectly in there this thought of being so engaged in your own and having agency over yourself on your own journey because you're you're interpreting things as you're going. And, you know, so many people today, I think it, they can find themselves in a place where they're being reactive instead of proactive. Right. And so. Right technology is changing, AI, like whole industries are changing. And there are many people who, when they don't keep up with what's happening and don't keep trying to reinvent themselves, find themselves in a place, unfortunately, where all of a sudden things have passed them by. And then they're trying to come to this place of going, now what? And it's almost like, mm -hmm. you know, you should have been doing that a long time ago to be thinking a couple of steps ahead. And I love that your story highlights that because you know, you didn't know exactly how things were going to play out. Um, none of us do, right? But you were ready because you were taking certain actions and following the breadcrumbs. I'm sure there were things that you were like, I don't really know how to do this, but I'm just going to get out there and do it. I mean, the setting up that website, putting things for $4.99. I mean, was there a was there a thought in your your mind of going like, okay, is $4.99 really going to make a difference? No. There was no thought because at that time I had never I had never created my own product and sold. It. I sold stuff on eBay, okay, for example, in the past, but it wasn't anything I hadn't created my own product and sold it. So yeah. I just figured four ninety nine is more than zero, right? And right now I'm not making. I mean, I was making ad revenue from YouTube, but I don't control that. So if I can yeah. make four ninety nine, that's more than the zero that I'm making already from sure. uh, anything that I'm creating and selling. So this was giving me control. So I loved it. Awesome. Yeah. And it's this creative spirit that rose up in you to go, okay, like you, you took the things that you knew and had experience with and said, okay, they, these are things that I can create videos around. This is what I can create content around. Um, right. So often I think we are too close to ourselves where we don't realize the value we have and the things that are like no brainers for us. We're like, oh, that's just the thing I do. Right. Um, yet for somebody else, that's like, that's the magic. And they're like, please share that with me because I, that's the information I need. That's the experience I need. So kudos to you for stepping into that and letting that unlock a whole other next season of your life and journey. Um, that's amazing. So yeah, I, 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 I'd love to find out now more of like, so when you went into this, like now you're in entrepreneur, like full, full mm -hmm. on and you're right. 
now you, you you've you've had TED talks, you've authored books, you have uh, podcasts, right? You've had um, uh, frameworks that you've developed. All these people that you're helping, like, how does this sense of um, what is next for you play into the the products and the services that you develop? Like, is there a sense of here's something that I think is going to be a great idea, or is it more of a, Hey, here's what people are coming to me and asking for. And then you're creating things like talk a little bit through like your decision-making of what it is that you create next and why. Good question. So for me has always been just answering the questions that people are asking. So it, it started that way with basketball. The reason that I made the videos that I made was simply just answering the questions that I was being asked. So players kept asking me the same question. I would just make a video. So I didn't have to keep answering that question. And that was, so it was really a, a matter of practicality. So I just kept getting asked the same question. Okay, let me make a video about that. So now anybody asks me that question, I'll just say, hey, go watch that video. I already answered that. And then that is what led to how I wrote my books. And a lot of times the books were based on the questions I was being asked. So if I was being asked the same question often enough that I felt like I had enough you know, meat on the bone, so to speak, that it could become a book. I made a book about it or I make a course about it. And that's really how I built all my stuff from when I started probably up through about probably up through probably around to the COVID years. So probably around about 2020. That's how I built everything. So my TED Talks were based on questions that I was being asked. My books were based on questions, my contents, my courses, all of that stuff was just based on answering the questions that people had, which is actually a really good way to do things anyway, because you're not you're not speculating. You're not speculating right. as to whether somebody wants it or not, because all you're doing is answering the questions that people already been asking you. So you know they want the answer to the question. So all you got to do is just make sure that they know that you answered it and boom, we go get the, the product or the course. So that has always been the way that I've done it. And even to this day now, because in professional speaking is a little bit different because your audience on YouTube is not the same people booking you to give a speaking gig. But right. Uh, when it comes to what I do now, you know, the main thing people often want is just access. You know, they want access to me. So that's where you know, the coaching and things like that come in. So now we have work on your game university, which is really my main focus these days. But we still got all the products. You can still go buy them. You know, but that's that's how I've always built is just answering the questions that I, either people have asked me or that I know they have, but they may not know that that's their question. Mm. Yeah. When you're stepping into these opportunities, like say the first time you go to write a book, I'm sure mm -hmm. you're like, I don't really know how to write a book as far as the process that rolls out um, mm -hmm. and actually getting in, into a physical book. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about like, how do you approach something when you don't necessarily know the process of it, but you have the idea and then you need to dive into it? Like, what do you do? Yeah, it's a great question. So I started writing books because that's, around the time uh, self-publishing became ubiquitous. Again, this is a, this the, this period between 2008, 2010, a lot of you know, creators were birthed simply because the material became available and it became easy for everybody to do it. And the gatekeepers went away and the barriers to entry just fell down. So that was the time for me as well. So the first book that I wrote was just me just giving a little story of my background as an athlete because all of my audience at that time was just ball players. So I just wrote a story of my years in basketball from when I first started up through college. That's the only of all my books that I've written. That's the only one that's a story. That is just a story. There's no, there's no uh, practical application. It's just me telling my story. All the rest of my books are practical application, no personal and professional development. But that book, it's funny because I went and did the audio version of the book around 
2015, Mike. I wrote the book in 2010, but I did the audio version in 2015. So I had to read my book out loud on microphone to get it recorded. And the writing on that book was so bad. Uh, that writing was not good at all. It was not well, not a well-written book. But the funny thing is, thousands of people read that book. Nobody ever complained about the writing. And the reason why is because I had such a dialed-in audience at that time. They were so bought into me and who I was that it didn't matter how good the writing was because they were reading Dre's book. And a lot of them don't didn't even read books. I got that message from so many people who said, Dre, I don't even read books, but I read your book, right? <laughs> because they wanted to hear what I had to say from my background. And there's a, a lot to be taken from that for anybody in the creator space. It's not about how good you are. It's about the connection you have to your audience. And that, that made me realize that or drove it further into me. I understood it then, but I understood it before then, but it drove it further in when I would see that from people. So that's the first book. And then after that, the next books that I wrote, I wasn't trying to, you know, quote unquote, write a book the way that a traditional book is written. And I know there are a lot of authors out there who say, well, if you're going to write a book, you got to have this and you got to have this and you got to have these pieces. And if you don't do it, then it doesn't look like a real book and people won't take it seriously. All of that is nonsense. All of that is nonsense. If you're going to write a book, the number one thing you need is a reader, someone who will read your, someone who will read your book. And if necessary, they will give their money to get your book. The next four or five books that I wrote were not written in any, you know, I wasn't following anybody's process or system. I had read a bunch of books, so I knew what a book looked like. All right. You got to have, it has, has to have pages. Ideally, you put some chapters in there. And you give people the material that they need. Now, all that extra stuff is the stuff that, let's say somebody who's deep in the publishing world, they notice that stuff. But do, does the actual reader give a damn about any of that? The answer is no, they don't. They don't care about that. All they care about is, is, the, is there something in the pages of this book that's going to give me what I want? If the answer is yes, then people will buy and read your book. And that's the long and short of it. And a lot of people in the publishing world don't like hearing that because it makes their... Uh, their knowledge, I guess, and their expertise less relevant, but it's the truth. Like, people don't really care about that stuff. That's the kind of stuff that we do to impress each other. And we're in right. the publishing world, but it matters nothing to the readers. So I understood that through the next few books that I wrote, because many of them, I didn't even um, have them edited. I didn't have them copy edited or anything. I just wrote them. And I just said what I wanted to say, because I've always been a writer. So I know how to write. All I had to do was figure out, or how do I get this out and have it on Amazon so somebody can go buy it? I figured that one out pretty quickly. And that's all I did. And many of those books that I wrote uh, 10 years ago, I still sell to this day. And I have not edited them, not one word of them. I'll keep them exactly as they are and people still buy them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're creating all these assets and resources as you go, and it, it just continues mm -hmm. to build. And um I'm sure there's a certain sense of accomplishment that happens with it. And then each one you go, okay, now I, I've taken this ground, I've done this. Now, what's the next iteration of this? Or how can I make things a little bit different? And on that topic, like, is there, through all the things that you've done, whether it's speaking, whether it's the, the books or any products, courses, things that you've created, is there like a next that you're looking forward to, like the next ground that you're looking forward to take? Yes. And I often think about that. Next ground I'm looking forward to take is really just making sure that the, the marketing machine is in place. And by the marketing machine, I just mean having a, a system and a process that allows products to get sold without me having to go out and do all the work myself. Because really one thing that I told myself this year, 2023, I'm not creating anything new. So no new books this year. No new courses this year. I haven't created anything new this year. I've really just been focusing on marketing 
uh, our highest ROI stuff. And that's been my whole focus. Next year, I'll probably get back into writing. I could literally write a thousand books if I wanted to. I got enough material to do so. I don't know if I'm going to, but we'll (laughs) see. I got to have the, we got to have the marketing machine in place because we got a thousand books. You need a thousand, thousand different processes to sell them. Well, one process, but that'd be a way to keep selling them and keep getting them out to people. So it's something that I'll be thinking about, but really my main focus is always, not always, that, that would be not true, but has become the marketing because you could have the best ideas and the best stuff, but if nobody knows about it, and you right. can't get it in front of people, then it doesn't matter. Right. So yeah. it's the marketing has become my main focus as an entrepreneur is really just figuring out how can I market stuff? Because when I figure out exactly how I can market things, then I, I can just press the gas on create. I can create forever as long as I know yeah. how I'm going to get it into the hands of the people who need it. Yeah. You make a good point there because it, so many times as creators, we think so much about the creation process, but not what happens right. after that. And there are plenty of people I know, and even I myself have created things where I'm like, okay, this is out there in the world now, but unless I have a way to keep this before people, it can very easily slip to the background. Or if I have uh, many different things that are out there, it's hard for people to know where are they, how can they access them? You know, you come into new contact with people that don't know anything about the previous stuff you've done. Um, All those things are definitely considerations into how do you continue to tell the story of what it is that you do and highlight these products so that they can get into the hands and start changing some lives and getting your story further out there. So you you make a great point in that. Um, I'm I'm wondering, is there something besides anything that you've shared already that Mm -hmm. is a pivotal moment for you that really made you sit up, take notice, maybe change something about how you were um, moving forward? Man, if I, only one? Well, like the one that comes to mind that's like, hey, this is something that definitely was, you know, uh, a key moment. Man, there are so many. I'll tell you, the one that has um, had the most influence on what we do now as a company is really just understanding that we could focus on high ticket selling. So biggest thing to focus on now is working on your game university, which is where I do all my coaching. And this, this is high ticket selling. So we're talking uh, five figures and up as opposed to a book, which might be $9. We might offer it free, just cover the shipping for nine ninety five, And that's fine. I could do that in volume. Again, you get the right marketing machine in place. You can make money selling things in volume. I mean, look at Walmart, they're a billion dollar company. Right? Mm-hmm. They sell cheap stuff in volume. <laughs> now you can do that. But I've found as an entrepreneur, being I don't have the economies of scale that Walmart has, nor do I have their staff, it's much easier on our side if we do high ticket, means fewer people, but more money. So that's really been once I learned that and I got with some people who know how to do that and they have systems and processes for how to do it. And this is why I invest in things like coaching and conferences and masterminds and things like that. Once I learned that, I said, okay, I can do my business like this. I, I don't have to be shipping out you no know, 20 books a day, which I, I, there've been times where I was doing that, but that's a, it's a lot of labor. It's a mm-hmm. lot of work and not labor, like putting the books in the envelopes, which is something that I have done, but we can have somebody else do that, but it's managing the people and the back and forth and the emails and the, uh, the wrong address, or I didn't get my book and all of this stuff. I, I could, you get one client on a high ticket offering, whatever your high ticket offering happens to be, that is worth more than selling 200 books 
right? So which one would you rather do? Because like, there's only a certain amount of time you have in a day. There's only a certain amount of energy and focus that you have. And would you rather have 200 people who paid you $10 or one person who paid you uh, 20,000? All right, which one is right. more valuable to you? So right. that is just an, in, I wouldn't even call it an epiphany. It's just kind of, it logically makes sense. But a lot of people, it's hard to wrap your mind around it until you do it, right? Sure. And when you wrap, and when you do it and you see that it actually works, you're like, oh, wait, I could have been doing this all along. <laughs> yeah. But the good news is, Mike, that I did take the time to write the books because that still allows me to, it gives me a, a breadth of ways to reach people. And like I said, I could write a thousand books. Like I may decide next year, I am literally going to put out a, a book a week or something like that. I've been thinking about it. I've been playing around with this idea in my mind. Like I may announce, hey, every week I'm going to put out a new book. Or I might write 10 books and put them all out at the same time and sell them as a 10 pack or whatever yeah. I might do. I got, cause I got so many ideas and I'm naturally a creator. Naturally I'm an artist, mm -hmm. but I had to make myself consciously into an entrepreneur and no, they're not the same thing. Yeah. And the artist focuses on the creating things, but the entrepreneur focuses on how do I, how do we make the register ring? And I understood that if my goal is to maximize uh, revenue and profit, I got to focus on being a marketer and not focus on being a creator. So that's why I told myself I'm not creating anything this year. And we're about, I don't know when this episode is coming out, but we're almost at halftime of the year 2023 and I have not created anything new. So I've been sticking to my word. Mm. Mm. Love it, man. You're, you're just dropping such nuggets of wisdom along here. And, uh, I know that this is going to be something that people are like, man, I need to rewind that and write that down because, <laughs> you know, so much of you understanding your own self and your journey and how you show up, uh, it, it comes out even in how you in what you share and how you share it. And so I, I appreciate that about you. Um, and, you know, just as we're kind of rounding out our time here, um, I would just love to know, like, is there anything that you would love to say to somebody who's listening right now and they're thinking, okay, I have these ideas, I have these things I want to create, but I feel a little stuck. I don't really know what to do next. Um, maybe it's a knowledge gap. Maybe they feel like it's an opportunity gap. Maybe it's a, something else that's a roadblock. What would you say to them in this moment? Number one thing, and this is a, a creator, somebody who's yes. kind of mm -hmm. doing their own thing. Number one thing, if you're going to put something out there creatively is before you create it is ask yourself, how am I going to get this into the hands of the people who need it? Because you need to know how this because the only reason people create things is usually because you want to help somebody else with it. Now, sometimes you create something because you just want to do it. You just want to say that you did it. And there are a lot of people, especially in the authorship space, who say, hey, I want to write a book. All right, you want to write a book. Okay. All right, you can write a book. I can show you how to write a book. Now, do you want anybody to read your book or is it just going to right. be for you? All right. If you want people to read your book, then you need to think about how are you going to get this into the hands of a reader aside from yourself? If it's more than just about you. And some of it is about us. And I mean, it feels good to be able to say, Hey, I wrote a book. I get it. That's, it serves your ego. But if you're thinking about getting this into the hands of people, you need to think about that plan. So whether you come up with it or you get with someone who knows how to do that, I would suggest you learn how to do it yourself because that gives you the power because when you have the power to uh, when you have the power to make things move and get money in exchange for them, then you have a business opportunity. If you can't make the money move, then you don't have any control over your business. So that's the number one principle that every creator needs to understand. If you're waiting on TikTok or YouTube to create more monetization tools for you to make money from the thing that you're doing, well, they own you. Because as soon as they decide to turn them off or kick you off, what are you going to do? Because you don't know how to make money come in. 
right? So that's the, the biggest thing that I would say to any creator is figure out how are you going to get this into the hands of the people who need it before you go and create it. And then once you have that plan in place, then you can create with that in mind and you can start selling your thing before it comes out. That's another thing that I learned that from, I think Tim Ferriss was one of the first people I had the credit for uh, planting that seed. You should be selling your book before you finish the book so that people are waiting for it. You don't wait till the book's done and you have it in your hand and say, hey, everybody, I got a book, go buy it. Uh, they don't know you. Uh, you got to warm them up. So uh, all of those things is really just thinking like a marketer and entrepreneur, not just as an artist, because you don't, what you don't want to be is a starving artist. All right. Yeah. Just trying to figure out how to make money from your creations. Yeah. Love it. Love mm. it. Love it. Mm. Again, such wisdom. I appreciate your insights on that. And I know it's going to help a ton of people today who are listening, take those next steps that they desperately need to. So Dre, uh, Dre, where can people find you? Where can they follow along? Where can they get some of your books and, and just lay some links on us or some places where they can connect with you? Sure. So I'm on all the social media applications. Uh, anyone, I'm on all of them. I post to everyone at least once a day. Actually, I'm about to make a I'm make a reel for Instagram and a uh, TikTok and all after we get done with this recording. Nice. But uh, my I'm probably most active on Instagram because I use the Instagram Stories function a lot. So my Instagram is just my name at Dre Baldwin. I do give people a free copy of my book the third day if they just cover the shipping. Can I tell them about that? Sure, absolutely. Okay, so the third day is right behind me. You couldn't see it. But this is my latest book called The Third Day, The Decision That Separates the Pros from the Amateurs. This book is all about how you show up and give your best effort when you least feel like it, which we all need. We all have days when we don't really feel like sitting down at the computer or days we don't feel like recording, days we don't feel like you know, getting on the mic or on the camera. How do you show up systematically and put a structure in place that makes it happen even when you don't feel like making it happen this book is all about that i give people a free copy of this the paperback version all you got to do is cover the shipping you just go to thirddaybook.com thirddaybook.com books free just cover the shipping and i do send out a daily motivation text message free of charge to everybody every day uh you can just text me at my number 305-384-6894 i'm sure we'll have it in the description so people yeah. can catch it that'll be Absolutely. down there and then uh our highest level programs are at work on your game university. But if you do any of the things I already said, Instagram, text me or get the book, we'll let you know about the university. Don't worry. All right. We won't oh, miss you. Perfect, <laughs> we'll make perfect. sure you know about it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for offering that to, to our listeners today. And I'm highly encouraging them right now to make sure that they go and take you up on that because uh, that's where the gold is. So I want to thank you again so much for our time today. And it's been great getting to know you and your journey. And uh, I just wish you all the best in all the things that are coming. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your platform, giving me the opportunity here, Mike. So I'm looking forward to hearing uh, great feedback from your audience. Thanks for listening today. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and a review. It really helps this podcast be seen and heard by others.